When about seven years ago, I was serving as a past, an associate pastor. I was over, we were, uh, pa- I was pastoring in a church that was in a college town, and so we had a lot of college students. And there was one uh, particular student named Charles Moclair, and he was a Haitian student. He was a member of our church. He and I had become really, really close friends, and he and I had been working through um, studying the scriptures together. It was training him how to share his faith, and we were developing just a really um, tight friendship, and we were, I was watching God move in all these exciting ways in his life. But then on a, raft, a whitewater rafting trip with several of his peers from the International Student Union, Charles was thrown overboard, and he drowned to death. Now, I don't say that to be morbid, um, but what happened after that is because he was from Haiti, he had family in Haiti, but because he was living in the United States, he had all these friends in the United States. And so his parents knew that he and I were close and asked me to preach at the, his, his United States funeral. And that was the first funeral I had ever preached in ministry. And I thought, God, what am I supposed to do? And so I remember reaching out to my senior pastor at the time. And I reached out to some of my mentors and heroes that serve as pastors. And I said, how do you preach a funeral like this? And their advice to me was something that have carried with me all these years as I've had the opportunity um, to preach at other people's funerals. And they said that when you do a eulogy for a Christian, for someone who is a brother or a sister in Christ, your goal is to accomplish two things. First, you want to honor and you want to celebrate the person who has died. So you want to honor their life and you want to celebrate all the things that they did to bless the people around them. And so you want to celebrate all the things that made them tick and the things that made you laugh about them and the things that gave you joy about being in their presence. And you wanted to to celebrate those things. But secondly, and more importantly, all of my pastor friends said, Will, what you need to do is you need to point the people in attendance at that funeral beyond the deceased and point them to God. See, this is certainly what I would like at my funeral. I mean, I want you guys to honor me, hopefully. I hope you, hopefully you have good things to say and there's some good memories. But more than anything, what I want at my funeral is for people to say, that is a life that, yes, it was fun and he was a good friend, but it pointed beyond himself to a God who is greater than him. That's what I want for my life, and I'm sure that's what you guys want for your life as well. And we want... When, we, when you speak a funeral, when you speak, uh, you speak of someone's life who's a follower of Jesus, you always want to talk about how their life pointed beyond them to something greater. And we've been studying the life of David for the last few months. And today we come to the very end of our study on the life of David. And I want to set up our time together today as if I'm giving a eulogy for King David. I want to summarize everything we've learned about his life and how his life points us to God. So imagine that King David, we're all gathered together for the funeral of King David, and I've got the honor to stand up and speak of his life and to point to him, but through him, to God, the God that he served. And David's death is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 2. It starts in verse 1. It says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go all of the way of the earth. Be strong, son, and show yourself a man. 
And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all of their heart and with all of their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." And then there's all these verses where David goes on and on telling Solomon to kill all of these enemies that he never got a chance to kill, which is kind of funny. He's like, you remember Joab and Shimei? I never got around to it, but hey, make sure to kill those guys for me before I die, after I die. You can read it. It's all good stuff. And then in verse 10, it says, Then David slept with his fathers, which means he died, and he was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. David was king for 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. And so Solomon, David's son, sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So we have, for the last several months, been studying the life of David. The highs, the lows, and everything in between. And now he's dead, and we're looking back on his life. We're looking at the whole picture, and we're looking back on his life. And what is it that we can learn from the life of the king? And other than Jesus, the Bible actually speaks of David more than any other human who's ever walked this earth. So there's got to be something about his life that points us to God and shows us how to walk in God's ways. There's got to be something. Why does the Bible speak so often of David? And so I want to offer you a few things that we can learn from David's life before we get ready for Easter Sunday next week. And the first is this, is that God desires bold prayers Or to put another way, David prayed scandalous prayers. David took God at his word. It's fascinating. David's prayer life indicated that he had a deep trust in the character of God. And he often dared God to make good on his promises. Uh, James and I were talking this week and we were discussing some of David's psalms. All the songs he wrote. And we both kind of laughed at the fact that many of the songs and the prayers that David wrote and that he sang would probably be more fitting to be sung at a dive bar on the Lower East Side than in most churches today. Because we, most churches today don't have a category for, the many types of, for many of the prayers that David prayed. Think about it. Many Christians, you listen to Christian radio and all the songs that are sung. and all, We like our prayers, we like our songs to be very sanitized. We don't like our prayers to be bold. Sometimes we pray like we're scared that God's going to think we're asking too much of Him. You know, you've heard the prayers, God, you know, if you want to, give me peace. You know, and we give Him an out. You know, God, will you heal uh, me from this sickness? But if you don't, you know, I still love you. We give God all these outs. David didn't pray like that. David prayed boldly. Remember after David committed adultery and with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband Uriah trying to cover it up, this is the prayer he prayed in Psalm 51. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David just committed adultery, murder, abuse of power, all of this stuff. And he says, God, will you forgive me? Show me your mercy. And when we studied this passage a few weeks ago, I made the point that this is the first time in Scripture that someone appeals to God's character and asks God, hey, will you blot out my sin but still keep me whole? 
Will you blot out all of my sin, but not blot me out? Because at this time in the history of God's people, no one had ever had the courage to ask for such a bold request. See, David didn't offer a contingency. He didn't say, if I sacrifice an animal, God, will you forgive me? Or he didn't say like Abraham, God, if I can find someone righteous in the city, will you forgive me? David says, God, I've heard rumors of your mercy. I've heard that you're merciful. I've heard people say that you're a God of mercy. If that's true, then I demand that you be merciful, that you be true to your character in my life. And that wars against us a little bit. That kicks against our sensibilities. Who has the right to demand from God? Who does David think he is? Daring God to show him mercy. Demanding that God show him mercy. Who does David think he is, we might say. But the better question might be, who does David think God is? And this is the key. Because David knew who God was. And perhaps the reason that we don't pray bold prayers like this is because we're not fully convinced of God's character. See, after studying this passage and the prayers of David for the last year, um, it has shaped my prayer life in these profound ways. Sometimes you may hear it in the way that I pray in the services, the way that I pray for you individually. individually. And that is that a while back I did a study on the names and the character of God. And God all throughout the scriptures is called all these names. The Good Shepherd, the Prince of Peace, the Provider, the Comforter, the Healer, Wonderful Counselor. All these names. And in the last year or so, I've been encouraged by David to demand that God live up to his character. And so it looks like this. There have been times where I need peace and I say, God, I'm not experiencing peace, but you call yourself the Prince of Peace. Be who you say you are in my life. Give me peace. Or there have been times where I've prayed for other people and I've said, God, you call yourself the wonderful counselor. Comfort us. Give us comfort. Or God calls, Jesus calls himself the Sabbath rest. Our final resting place. And I say, God, I'm tired or we're tired or this person is tired. You say that you're rest. Give, be who you say you are. Give us rest. And you say, demanding from God like that? I think God loves that. I think God loves this. Because when you look at the life of Jesus, the people he connects the most with are the ones who are bold enough to dare him to move in their lives. The lepers, I think of the lepers and the diseased people who illegally left their quarantines in the cities and they would push through the crowds trying to find Jesus and ask Jesus to heal them. You think about this. Lepers were sent off in their colonies. People who were sick were sent off. They were quarantined away from the city. They weren't allowed to touch people, much less a rabbi. And so these accounts of, say, the woman uh, who has the discharge of blood or the accounts of the lepers that find Jesus... These people are breaking the law by leaving their quarantines and they're breaking the law because remember, Jesus attracted these huge crowds. They would be pushing through the crowds, grabbing people by their shoulders, which would have been illegal. But they did not care because they had to get to Jesus. And they would get to Jesus and they would grab his robe or they would get on their knees and beg Jesus to show them mercy. And, peop- and the people of the day were like, who in the world do these people think they are approaching a rabbi like this? These people are disgusting, outcasts. They have no business even being around a regular person, much less a rabbi. How dare they? And Jesus would turn around and say, hey, who touched my robe? And he would get down on his knee. He would look them in the eye and he would say, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus loved that stuff. He would say, listen, you're healed. 
Your faith is to be commended. And then he would say something like, hey, you want to go grab something to eat? That's Jesus. And it would infuriate the religious people. Who has the nerve to talk to a rabbi like that, they would say. (laughs) But if you read the life of Jesus, those are the people that annoyed Jesus the most. The people that thought that they couldn't, the people thought that you had to sort of present, make yourself presentable to Jesus and that you couldn't bother him with your requests. The people that Jesus was most attracted to were the people that were brave enough and bold enough and courageous enough to dare him to be who he was. God, I've heard of your mercy. Will you show me mercy? And David shows us how to pray. See, when you pray for your family or your neighbors or your church, do you pray weak and wimpy prayers where you sort of give God an exit? God, if you want to. Or do you hold up God's character in front of his face and say, God, be who you say you are. God, you say that you're the Prince of Peace. Bring peace to Syria. God, you say that you're the Prince of Peace. Give me peace in my life. See, imagine the size of the prayers you would pray if you were fully convinced that Jesus was the Almighty. See, David gave us that example. The second thing that David, his life shows us is that you will experience both mountaintops and valleys in this life. I think it's fascinating that David is able to author probably his most famous song that he ever wrote is Psalm 23. And I think it's fascinating this passage is juxtaposed with these two lines. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want for anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. That's a mountaintop. Still waters, paths of righteousness, restores my soul. David understood that that, you have days like that, but the very next line shows that he knew that there were days like this. But even though there are times where I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For God, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, David understood that a life following God would lead him to still waters, but it would also lead him through valleys of death at times. See, from the beginning of David's life, the scriptures clue us in into the fact that he is a, quote, man after God's own heart. That's what the Bible says of him. He had a heart to obey God and do and follow God. And there's this myth in American Christianity that says that if you follow God and you have enough faith, that God will protect you from all of life's trials and difficulties. If you have enough faith, if you follow God, you will experience nothing but material blessing and God will shelter you from all pain and all sorrow. But David shows, David's life shows that that's not true. So does Jesus's and Paul's and Peter's and Esther's. Name anybody. David's life shows that a life that is committed to following God will often lead to great victories, yes. But those victories come through great battles and through great difficulties. See, battles that David did not choose, battles that he did not seek out, and battles that he didn't ask for. See, David, if you read his early days, you find that he's so content being a shepherd. Like, he's so content just playing his harp and sitting in the fields and being a shepherd for his sheep. But yet, God calls him to be the king, and that that role carried with it this great weight and responsibility and pain. David didn't choose to stand before a giant named Goliath. David didn't choose to be hunted down by a maniac, King Saul, who attempted to murder him on numerous occasions. David didn't choose to spend a decade of his life hiding in a cave, running for his life. 
Those were all situations that were outside of His control. And likewise, in your life, you didn't choose cancer. You didn't choose singleness in your 40s. And you didn't choose to have a special needs child. You didn't choose to have that particular temptation that just continues to plague you. You didn't choose to face whatever battle it is you're facing. But for whatever reason, that's the battle you're facing. And in the midst of those battles, we're often tempted to fight in our own strength. To fight our battles, to fight our wars in our own strength. But David shows us a better way. In 2 Samuel 22, also in Psalm 18, David sings this. He says, The Lord is my shield. He's the horn of my salvation. David uses a battlefield metaphor for who God is. A shield, which is a metaphor for protection. The Lord protects His people. And when you're in battle, you only need a shield when you're facing danger. You don't need a shield when when things are great, right? You only need a shield when you're facing danger. Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, Do not be afraid, for I'm your shield. And the thing about shields is they only work moving forward in battle. Sometimes following a king into battle will lead you into danger. That's why you need a shield. And David understood this. Following God and obeying God's laws meant that he didn't kill Saul when he had the chance. Even though Saul's death would have brought security and wealth to David. But David knew that to move forward in the ways of God often meant difficulty, so he saw the Lord as his shield. And sometimes it feels so terrible to move forward. But what's the other option? What are you going to do, retreat and get shot in the butt, right? (laughs) A shield only works when you're moving forward, when you're following God. And years ago... I heard some, a pastor tell a story of a book, The Princess and the Goblin. It's a children's book. And so I got downloaded it on Kindle, and I was going to read it to my kids. But, or at the time, I think it was just my son, and he was two. And he just wasn't into hearing a story about goblins. But I got hooked on it and read the entire story. It's called, from George MacDonald. It's called The Princess and the Goblin. And the story is about an eight-year-old girl named Irene. And she found an attic in her room one day. And in her house, and she liked, and she continually would go into the attic and she would go play there. And every so often, her dead grandmother would appear to her, kind of like a ghost. Uh, but, and she would hang out with her grandmother. She would go up in the attic to spend time with her grandmother, whom she loved. And one day, her grandmother gave her a ring, and it had a string tied to it. And the string led to a ball of thread. And the grandmother had the ball of thread in her hand. And the grandmother said, Irene, if you ever find yourself in danger, I want you to take this ring and I want you to put this ring with the thread tied to it. I want you to put this ring under your pillow. And I want, if you're ever in danger, I want you to take out the thread and I want you to follow the, I want you to take out the ring and I want you to follow the thread wherever it goes. And Irene says, oh, how delightful grandmother, because I know that it will always lead to you because the grandmother had the ball of thread in her hand. And the grandmother said, yes, my dear, but it may seem a very roundabout way, but you must not doubt the thread. Because while you hold on to the the ring, I hold on to the ball of thread. And so a few days later, Irene is is laying in bed. She's got her ring under her pillow and a goblin shows up in the middle of her room. And it's in the middle of the hallway in her room. And so Irene, she's calm, cool, collected. She grabs her ring and she pulls it out from under the pillow and she begins following the thread. 
And she thinks it's going to lead her to the attic, but it doesn't lead her to the attic. It leads her outside of the castle and into the yard, and it actually leads her through the wilderness and into a cave where there are goblins. And it leads her to a heap of stones. And it's a dead end. And she starts weeping. And she's wondering, how am I going to get out of here? So she starts scraping and tearing down the wall. Because the thread goes through the wall and she's tearing and scraping and she's trying to pull the rocks apart and she's crying and she's all these tears and she's, her hands are bleeding but she keeps, she keeps going. She says, I have to follow the thread. I have to follow the thread because the thread always through, proves trustworthy because my grandmother always proves trustworthy. I know she's on the other end of this thread. And she pulled and she pulled the wall down and she followed the thread and she eventually was reunited with her grandmother. But that thread took her through a cave of goblins and a heap of stones first. But it led her to her grandmother. And when God called David to follow him, to be obedient, it was difficult for David. And there were times where obedience to God would have been... um, There were times when disobedience to God would have been seemed easier and even safer and less tiresome for David. It was obedience that led David onto a battlefield with Goliath. It was obedience that led David into a cave fighting for his life. But he saw God as his shield during all of these times. But if you think of all the moments where David retreated in his life, when he retreated from obedience to God, what happened? Bathsheba, Absalom, his son, See, the easy way never proved beneficial for David. It seemed safer in the moment, but it, it, it led to destruction in the end. See, obedience, even when it seems costly, was actually when David was most secure. And when Jesus told his disciples, and when Jesus calls you and me to follow him, we don't know where that thread leads. You do not know where the thread of following Jesus leads in your life, but you must know that he's a good shield and that he's trustworthy and that the thread always leads back to him. And so you can turn to him in all of your disappointments. You can turn to him, not away from him. And life may, oh, following Jesus may at times look like a dead end, but the thread doesn't work in reverse. When Irene tried to go backwards, the thread disappeared. But the thread doesn't work in reverse. We follow Jesus forward. And by looking at David's life, we can see that there's nowhere more safe and more full of blessing than obedience to God. So keep moving forward. God is your shield. This is the message of David. Now finally, you will not live a perfect life. This is the last thing we find from David's life. You will not live a perfect life, but you can live a repentant life. See, the more I study the life of David, I think this is the most important lesson that you can learn in all of his life. See, I've always been perplexed at the idea that David is lifted up as like a spiritual example throughout the Bible. I mean, I grew up in churches where people would say, be like David. And I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, David is a man after God's own heart. Be like David. I'm like, I don't know, because that baffles me, because David did some really terrible things. Some really terrible things. Murder, adultery, dishonesty, corruption. Like I've done some bad things in my life. But I I haven't checked those boxes. And on top of that, David wasn't a very good father for most of his kid's adult life. 
And so I'm like, how is this a man after God's own heart? How is this an example? Why do I want to be like David? I'd much rather be like Enoch, who was like so holy that God just whisked him away into heaven. He never even died. That's what I want to be. And I'm like, how is this a man after God's own heart? I can name to you 10,000 people who have lived more morally exemplary lives than David. But the more I study the life of David, I see that the example that he sets for us is that he demonstrates what a life of repentance looks like. See, David's not a perfect character, far from it. In fact, the thing I actually like about David is that he looks a lot like us. He has a heart for God, like most of us. He's got a desire to please God, to live for him, to give God glory. I mean, I want that for my life. That's what David wanted, but David kept getting in his own way. And don't you feel like that sometimes? You want to please God. You want to live a life that glorifies Him, but you just kind of keep tripping over yourself. And that was David. He falls prey to his own lust. He gets a little lazy in his parenting. And when he's afraid of getting caught in his sin, he makes it worse by trying to cover up his tracks. I've fallen prey to all of those temptations. But David wants to please God, but he keeps getting in his own way. And that sounds so familiar because David is you and David is me. David drifted from God a lot. But the lesson of David's life is that he always found his way back. And some of you, you live your life on a spiritual roller coaster. You want to please God, but you keep doing stupid things. (laughs) And here's what a spiritual roller coaster looks like. You have a good week. Whatever that looks like for you. You read the Bible you listen to like sermon podcasts on the, the train or you sang some worship songs or you prayed every day or you didn't look at that website or you didn't drink too much or you didn't yell at your kids or you didn't have, whenever you have a week like that, when you go, man, I was good this week, you feel good and you feel comfortable approaching God. Think, all right, I can, I can pray today because God must like me right now. But then you have a bad week, however that plays out. You fall back into that old habit that you said you would never do again. Or you're harsh with your spouse or your kids. Or the worst version of yourself rears its ugly head and you feel guilty. You feel ashamed. You feel unworthy to be in the presence of God. So you know what you do? You avoid Him. You start making deals in your own head. God, you know, if I can go two to three days without doing that thing again, then I'll pray. Or but I'm just too ashamed right now. You probably, just, you probably wouldn't want to hear from me anyway. And listen to me, if you string enough bad weeks together in a row, you will find yourself in a season where you avoid God, where you avoid God's people, the church, and you drift further and further and further from Him. And I've seen people lose their faith because they feel too ashamed to enter into the presence of God. I've seen this happen a million times in my life and in the life of others. But David's life teaches us a valuable lesson. And that is that if we have to learn that if we want to experience the life that God has for us, we must learn to turn back to God when we make mistakes. You are not going to live a perfect life. Nobody in here, I think it's hilarious when people say, oh, that guy's a good Christian. I'm like, what does that mean? There's no such thing as a good Christian. There's all of us who are sinners, but by God's grace, God keeps taking us back. There's a good Christ. 
You are not going to live a perfect life, but you can live a repentant life. Martin Luther, the reformer, said the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. And when I say repentance, people get scared. They think of the dude with the tattered clothes in Times Square with the signs, repent or die, you know, you're going to hell or whatever. That's not, that, that, that repentance is simply turning your attention back to God when you've taken it off of Him. And here's what I love about David. Even on his worst days and even in his worst seasons, sometimes it takes him time, but he always finds a way back to God. Bathsheba, adultery, murder, corruption. A year later says, God, have mercy on me. I screwed up, but you will take me back, won't you? God, bring, take me back. Absalom, he neglects his children, watches his family spiral out of control into this Jerry Springer-like situation where his daughter ends up being raped, but two of his sons end up dead. And he says, God, what have I done? And he builds an altar for God and he repents and he begins worshiping. And he turns his attention back to God even in his greatest failures. David is not a moral example in the scriptures. David is an example of what it looks like when you, when you fail morally, but you constantly find your way back to a gracious and loving God. And I'll be honest with you, I relate a lot more to that than I do to Enoch being whipped away because he was so holy. So there's good news for you this week. And here's the good news, and that is that we're about to sing another song. And we're about to take communion. And if you had a bad week, or you've had a bad month... You're welcome to sing as loud as you want on this song. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to keep your voice low because you feel like you would make God mad because you've been so bad you can't sing loud. You kind of have to hide from Him a little bit. No, you can sing as loud as you want. And you can come take the bread and the cup of communion because that's what it's there for, to receive His forgiveness. You don't have to sit this one out this week. You can confess your sins and He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness and to forgive us of our sins. See, oftentimes we sit church out or we just kind of avoid God because we hope for a better performance next week. Maybe, maybe you think of Him like the coach. Maybe He'll put me in next week if I play a little better in practice this week. No. You come to Him, you receive His forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to prove yourself. You simply turn your attention back to Him and He will restore you. Only He's lived the perfect life. Only He has had a good week. And because He, he lived the good life and He died the death that you deserved in your place, you can turn back to Him and He will receive you with open arms. See, this is what David's life teaches us. David's life teaches us, and this is a good funeral sermon. We're not looking to David, we're looking beyond David. And the story of David's life is not be like David. That's going to get you in trouble. It's going to get you in prison. The story, the, the message is not be like David. The message is turn to God. Because God is faithful and just. Bow with me. Father in heaven, thank you.